This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today, the committee will hold a nomination hearing for three very important positions. First, we have Mr. Jeffrey Eberhardt to be Special Representative for the President for Nuclear Proliferation with the rank of Ambassador. Second, we have the Honorable James Gilmore to be U.S. Representative to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe with the rank of Ambassador. And our third nominee is Mr. Alan Swendeman to be Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. We also have one of our distinguished committee members, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, who will be joining us momentarily. Uh, he wishes to introduce one of our four nominees, uh, one of our nominees, rather. So we're gonna, going to allow him to proceed with um, his introduction uh, as soon as he arrives. Uh, I will postpone my, my statement uh, and uh, ask the ranking member to do the same until after the nominee's uh, introductions. Um, I'll go ahead and proceed in, in light of Senator Kane's, uh, we've got such busy schedules here, these, everyone's attuned to the schedules here on the Hill. So welcome to each of the nominees uh, to the committee and thank you and your families for having the willingness to serve. First, I'm pleased to welcome Mr. Uh, Jeffrey Eberhardt of Wisconsin and a career member of the Senior Executive Service who's been nominated to be Special Representative of the President for Nuclear Nonproliferation. Mr. Eberhardt is currently the Director of the Office of Multilateral and Nuclear Affairs in the Bureau of Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance at the State Department. Previously, Mr. Eberhardt served as a Foreign Affairs Officer in the Office of Nuclear Affairs at the State Department. He's also served as a Senior Military Advisor at the Pentagon, as a foreign area officer with assignments in Europe and Asia, and as a senior fellow at the George Marshall Center and a battery commander in Germany. At a time when the pursuit of nuclear weapons remains a deep ambition for the regimes in Iran and North Korea, as we face threats through Russia's repeated violations of the INF Treaty, and as China's nuclear ambitions continue to rise, it's critically important that we combat the proliferation of nuclear weapons and examine the future of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. Following the administration's announcement that the United States would withdraw from the INF Treaty due to Russian violations and their refusal to return to compliance, I think it's critical for this committee to examine your views on the future of arms control and whether any nonproliferation agreement can be successful with unreliable partners like Russia and China. At this point, um, I I'd like to pivot uh, to Senator Kane, uh, who uh, has joined us, and um, uh, I believe he'd like to uh, make an introduction of one of our nominees. Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Yeah. Chair, and uh, welcome to all. We were all just coming from a classified briefing of the committee, but it's my pleasure to introduce before the committee the 68th Governor of Virginia, a personal friend, uh, the Honorable Jim Gilmore, and just to share a few words about uh, Jim with the committee. He's a nominee who I strongly support uh, to be the ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE. Um, Governor Gilmore began his public service uh, in the military where he was posted in Western Europe and became fluent uh, in German. He has served as a local elected official, Commonwealth's attorney, our uh, elected prosecutor, and then the Attorney General of Virginia, and then the Governor of Virginia, 68th Governor of Virginia. He's also had 
additional service past his time as governor from 1999 to 2003. He was chairman of the congressional panel assessing America's uh, capabilities to respond to terrorist attack, the congressional advisory panel to assess domestic response capabilities. Uh, that panel uh, was known as the Gilmore Commission. Uh, as governor, he did extensive work to build ties between Virginia and partners around the world, economic missions to nations all over Europe, all over the world. And he currently works in Alexandria at the American Opportunity Foundation as the president and CEO. Uh, this is a foundation, and its predecessor is the Free Congress Foundation, who works to shape a public dialogue about Congress and American society with a special focus on national security issues. Governor Gilmore is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, somebody who's well qualified for this position. I've had the opportunity as a member of this committee to visit uh, the OSCE and dialogue about the important work and as we've known from committee hearings about NATO and other important issues, there's a lot of equities on the table right now with respect to security cooperation between the United States uh, and Europe and not just the NATO members but all of Europe and Governor Gilmore is very, very uniquely qualified uh, to be in this position and I'm happy to be here to introduce him. Well, thanks so much, uh, Senator Kane, uh, and uh, congratulations uh, to Governor Gilmore and to yourself on uh, the big win last night uh, <laughs> at UVA's basketball game. Um, you, you have an impressive record, sir. I, I won't recapitulate all that was just said, blessedly, um, but uh, the role, again, that you've been nominated for is ambassador to Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. With 57 participating states in North America, Europe, and Central Asia, OSCE is the world's largest regional security organization. Headquartered in Vienna, Austria, OSCE sets standards in fields including military security, economic and, and environmental cooperation, and human rights and humanitarian concerns. In addition, OSCE undertakes a variety of preventive diplomacy initiatives designed to prevent, manage, and resolve conflict within and among the participating states. Mr. Gilmore, with uh, the many challenges facing our world, I look forward to hearing more about how you envision using your post to advance American security interests. Finally, I'm pleased to welcome Mr. Alan Swendeman of North Carolina, nominated to be Deputy Director of the Peace Corps. Mr. Swendeman currently serves as founding principal of the Capital Connection, a consulting strategy and business development firm. Previously, Mr. Swendeman served as a legal advisor and senior executive for a broad range of federal agencies, including serving as deputy principal legal advisor and chief of staff for U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, general counsel of USAID, general counsel and acting chief of staff of the GSA, and General Counsel of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. Mr. Swindeman has held positions within the Executive Office of the President and the State of North Carolina, overseeing administrative services and information technology. In addition, he has more than 30 years of experience in private law practice, where he focused on corporate counseling and government contracting. Perhaps most notable, it's my understanding Mr. Swindeman's daughter, Shelley, has served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine. Since President Kennedy established the Peace Corps in 1961, more than 230,000 Americans of all ages have served in 141 countries worldwide. The Peace Corps sends Americans with a passion for service abroad on behalf of the United States to work with communities and create lasting change. 
Volunteers help develop sustainable solutions to address challenges in education, health, community economic development, agriculture, environment, and youth development. And through their Peace Corps experience, volunteers gain a unique cultural understanding and a lifelong commitment to service that positions them to succeed in today's global economy. I look forward to hearing how Mr. Swendeman will work to ensure that the Peace Corps remains an organization known around the world for their commitment to service and helping those in desperate need of assistance. With that, I would like to recognize my distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Merkley. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And I'm pleased to be working with you to launch the work of this subcommittee in this cycle. Many of the most pressing challenges facing the United States, from climate change to nuclear proliferation or transnational threats that require collective solutions. International organizations are critical to addressing these challenges. The positions today's nominees will fill if confirmed are examples of this essential work. I join you in welcoming our three nominees, and I appreciate your willingness to serve and welcome to your family members who might be attending with you today. Mr. Eberhard and Governor Gilmore, if confirmed, you will have the difficult task of reasserting U.S. leadership in tackling key regional and international security <coughs> challenges. At the center of much international mischief is Russia. Your jobs as the President's Special Representative for Nonproliferation and U.S. Representative to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe would require leading a unified front with allies to push back on Russia's flouting of international norms and attempts to redraw boundaries. U.S. leadership in the arms category does not mean taking a trip back to the wild, wild west that we had before international agreements that helped control limits on both our regional and strategic forces. The collapse of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Force Treaty in August and the lack of action to prepare for extending the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, New START, past 2021, risk returning us to the instability of the time we had before we had such bilateral agreements. It is because of, not in spite of Russia's misbehavior, that we need to double down on diplomacy in partnership with our alliances around the world. Mr. Swindeman, it's a special joy to be able to participate in running the Peace Corps. This morning I met with the student leaders from Oregon State University in Corvallis, and one of them who is graduating is headed off to the Peace Corps in Rwanda. I was able to go to Rwanda with uh, Chris Coons and several of our other senators a few years ago. Uh, and it's a, a nation that has many challenges following the, the intense, intense battles of a few years ago. And having our folks on the ground, helping with fundamentals, clean water, education, all kinds of agricultural strategies is something very important for, in their lives and important in the relationship between our two countries and important to the development of the economy for the people there. And of course, this is multiplied by all the volunteers all over the world. So. It's, uh, I wish you the, the best in that setting. I look forward to hearing from our nominees. Well, thank you, Senator Merkley. We'll now turn to our first nominee, Mr. Jeffrey Eberhardt. Uh, thank you for your willingness, again, to take on this critical role. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. 
So if you could please keep your remarks to no more than five minutes or so, uh, we'd appreciate it so that uh, members of the committee can engage with you on uh, their questions, sir. Mr. Eberhardt. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Merkley. It's an honor to appear before this committee as President Trump's nominee to be the Special Representative of the President for Nuclear Nonproliferation. I am grateful to the President and Secretary Pompeo for the confidence they have placed in me and for the opportunity, with your approval, to continue to serve this country in a new and challenging position of responsibility. I'm proud to be joined today by two of my sons, Todd and Joshua, both of whom had the distinction of being born in what was then known as West Germany during my first overseas tour. I joined the State Department following 23 years in the Army and have worked on nuclear-related issues across three successive administrations. I participated in the six-party talks beginning when I was still on active duty in the Office of Secretary of Defense and continuing when I joined the Department. I worked on the Iran and North Korea files for many years. Closer to our subject today, I have been involved in the review cycles of the Treaty on the Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons since 2005, participating in preparations for and working on the U.S. delegations to multiple NPT preparatory committees and review conferences. I was part of the state team contributing to both the 2010 and 2018 nuclear posture reviews. I also contributed to numerous policy reviews over the past years on issues such as the proposed fissile material cutoff treaty, the comprehensive nuclear test ban treaty, and the NPT itself. What has struck me from these years of serving different administrations, Mr. Chairman, is, is a strong element of bipartisan continuity in U.S. nuclear policy. There have been a few guiding principles that date back decades. For instance, that the United States will work to reduce the numbers and salience of nuclear weapons with the ultimate goal of someday eliminating them, but that for so long as nuclear deterrence remains necessary, we will maintain an effective nuclear force. The United States has also remained steadfast in its commitment to maintaining the global nonproliferation regime, re recognizing the enormous dangers that would arise from allowing the spread of nuclear weapons to additional countries. This remarkable, this remarkable continuity is a credit to the many thoughtful and dedicated professionals that this nation has been fortunate to have serving in positions of responsibility for these matters. I've learned a great deal from them. They have left big shoes to fill, but if confirmed, I strive to do so. It is no secret that this NPT review cycle, which will culminate in the review conference in May 2020, is a challenging one. The United States has been engaged in wide-ranging diplomatic efforts to prepare for that conference, stressing the importance of shoring up the nonproliferation regime against the challenges it faces from North Korea and Iran, stressing the importance to human prosperity and development of sharing the benefits of peaceful nuclear technology, and stressing the degree to which these benefits depend upon the solid foundation provided by adherence to best practices in the realm of nuclear safeguards, safety, and security. If confirmed, I will work to support and to help lead U.S. diplomatic efforts to protect and advance the important principles and objectives of the NPT. This may not be an easy road. There are those who believe, for example, that despite having reduced our nuclear arsenal by approximately 88% from its Cold War high, that the United States has not re reduced far enough or fast enough. There is also the long-standing problem of how to advance toward a Middle East weapons of mass destruction free zone, an issue that dates to the treaty's indefinite extension in 1995. These challenges are daunting, Mr. Chairman, but what is clear is that without strong U.S. leadership, achieving success will not be possible. And we are seeking to meet these challenges. Success, I believe, should begin by ensuring that when nations meet in 2020 to mark the 50th anniversary of the treaty's entry into force, we all recommit ourselves to the NPT in all its aspects. The NPT has been extraordinarily successful in stemming what was, decades ago, expected to be rampant proliferation of nuclear weapons. Thankfully, that has not happened, 
There have been setbacks, most notably, notably with North Korea, but we live in a much safer world thanks to the NPT. And the expansion of the many benefits of the peaceful uses of nuclear energy have been made possible by the strong non-proliferation nor non norms established by the treaty. The United States is also exercising leadership in the discussion of disarmament. Even as the obstacles to further progress have increased thanks to, to a deteriorating security environment, we are engaging a broad range of international partners and in beginning to build a serious multilateral discussion of what must be done to improve the security environment to allow further progress in reducing nuclear arsenals. If confirmed, I will work to advance these important objectives, striving to help ensure that the NPT and the broader non-proliferation regime that has been built around the, that treaty over the last 50 years is positioned for continued success for another half century. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, and thank you, Mr. Eberhardt. Mr. Gilmore, uh, <coughs> please proceed with your statement, sir. Well, thank, thank, you. thank you very much, uh, Senator Young and uh, Senator Merkley. Uh, and uh, I'm delighted to have an opportunity to appear before this committee. I also want to thank Senator Kane for coming here today to introduce me to the committee. Uh, Senator Kane and I share a common background as former governors of Virginia, and I'm grateful for your support, Senator. Uh, if confirmed, it would be my pleasure to serve as the United States Permanent Representative to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and to lead that mission together with allies and partners to address these comprehensive challenges facing Europe, Eurasia, and North America. I'm grateful to President Trump uh, for the opportunity to serve my country again, and I am grateful for his confidence in uh, my ability to advance American interests and values. I'm pleased to introduce uh, the fam my family members who are here with me today. First, my wife, Roxanne, my wife of 42 years, the former First Lady of Virginia. She holds two degrees in ancient history from the University of Virginia, has taught for more than three decades. Taught me, too. Uh, I've learned a great deal from... Uh, from her knowledge about all of this in Western civilization. Uh, I have two sons, one who's able to be here with me today, my son Jay, who is here also. He works here in national security in, uh, in Washington. My younger son, Ashton, is likewise uh, not here today, but he also works in national security in Charlottesville. Uh, I've been committed to a student of foreign policy since attending the University of Virginia. I served in the U.S. Army, as the Senator said, in military intelligence as a non-commissioned officer. Uh, I've been prosecutor, attorney general, and governor. I've traveled to 18 countries on three continents on trade issues. I'll draw on these experiences, uh, if confirmed, uh, in order to uh, work to stand up to those who seek to undermine our values and the rules of the institution of the OSCE. The OSC is an indispensable pillar of the security architecture that served the United States well for generations. I'm proud that the United States helped to establish this organization at the height of the Cold War in the 70s. If confirmed, I would strive to maintain strong leadership in the OSCE and defend these principles on which the organization was founded. Its unique value stems from its broad-based membership, 57 participating states and nations across the Atlantic and Eurasia, its comprehensive approach to security, which acknowledges the relationship between security and respect for human rights and the rule of law and democracy. It's the premier platform in Europe and Eurasia for advancing human rights and fundamental freedoms. It's a rich body of human rights that's represented in OSCE. The Helsinki Final Act 
principles speak for respect of sovereignty and territorial integrity of states as well as for human rights and fundamental freedoms. Now, these tenets are enduring. The contempt that Russia has shown for these principles and commitments through repression at home and aggression abroad should concern us all. Of all the challenges confronting the OSCE today, none is more consequential or vexing than the conflict in Ukraine. Russia has armed, trained, led, and fought alongside its proxy forces in eastern Ukraine since 2014, leading to approximately 13,000 deaths. Russia's fueling of the conflict, its purported, annex, purported annexation of Crimea, and its provocative action in the Kursk Strait and the Black Sea undermine the regional stability undermine regional stability and directly contravene all 10 of the foundational Helsinki principles. The special monitoring mission to Ukraine by the OSCE serves as the world's eyes and ears in eastern Ukraine in the conflict zone. If confirmed, I will call on Russia to respect Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity within its internationally recognized borders. There are unresolved conflicts in Europe that weaken regional stability, if confirmed, I would promote progress within the OSC to resolve these protracted conflicts that have undermined peace in Eastern Europe and the South Caucasus. We've got to press for full implementation of existing agreements and arrangements to rebuild military transparency. If confirmed, I will work with the allies and the partners to restore transparency and predictability on the European continent among conventional forces. Respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms is an essential aspect of security of security. If confirmed, I would ensure that the U.S. mission of the OSCE remains a strong voice on behalf of human rights defenders targeted for repression, and I would continue to champion the role of civil society. I am committed to defending religious freedom and combating anti-Semitism and other manifestations of intolerance, including hate crimes. I'll draw on my personal experience in that regard. Congress's active bipartisan engagement in the OSCE has been a tremendous strength. I commend the members of Congress who serve on the Helsinki Commission and participate in the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly. And they hold leadership positions in each. And I'm uh, pleased to see that there's so much active participation. If confirmed, I will follow the path set out by the President and Secretary Pompeo to provide U.S. leadership to uphold U.S. Uh, OSCE principles and commitments. Staying true to these principles is, is now is the work with allies and partners to leverage the capabilities and address our conventional and emerging threats. Senator, uh, Mr. Chairman, today I'm very grateful for the opportunity to lead the outstanding team at OSCE in Vienna. If confirmed, I commit to providing my best analysis and advice to the U.S. government and to work with the Committee of the Helsinki Commission and Congress to advance the policies that promote democracy, advance human rights, and enhance the prosperity and security of our country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I welcome your questions. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Swindeman, please uh, make your opening statement, sir. Mr. Chairman, first, first, with your indulgence, I'd like to uh, congratulate Governor Gilmore and you, Senator Kane, on UVA's uh, winning the NCAA basketball championship. Uh, I told the governor I was a little surprised he was here and you're here, Senator Kane. I thought you'd still be celebrating. Um, truth be told, uh, as a graduate of the University of North Carolina, I had hoped that the Tar Heels would be there. And I suspect, Senator uh, Young, you would have liked to have seen Indiana, and you, Senator Merkley, would like to have seen Oregon or Oregon State. Um, obviously, this wasn't our year. Um, 
needless to say, Virginia is an ACC school. So Senator Kane, Governor Gilmore, you have my support. I'm trying to forget about that Purdue-Virginia game. So, all right. All right. I, I'm all sorry. Right. Yes. Oh, and Oregon-Virginia. Uh, I mean, yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. I'm this sorry, Mr. Kidding. Chairman, that I left. This is, this is not going in the right direction. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman, I left Purdue out. You can proceed with your uh, opening statements. Okay. Right. Chair, uh, Chairman Young, Ranking Member uh, Merkley, it's been an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as Deputy Director of the Peace Corps. I appreciate the President's confidence in me and Director Olson's support to join her team of dedicated individuals working toward building stronger partnerships around the world. In addition, I would like to recognize my family. I am well aware that my public service career has been made possible because of the unconditional support my wife Kathy, daughter Shelley, and son Robert have provided over the years. My wife, by way of note, served for 40 years in the Congressional Research Service, American Law Division, specializing in healthcare, social security, Medicare, and Medicaid. You may, or um, your staff may be familiar with her, with her work. My daughter regretfully could not attend today. Her one-year-old son is quite sick and now she's come down with it as well. So uh, she would have loved to have been here, um, Senator Merkley. The Peace Corps is as important and relevant as ever. It represents the face of this nation. Volunteers build positive perceptions of this country in the minds and hearts of the people served throughout the world. And the impact of Peace Corps volunteers goes far beyond their time and service. I've witnessed this when I visited my daughter, Shelley, who was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine. She worked alongside her Ukrainian teacher counterparts to inspire the next generation of students to build and improve their English proficiency. Some of her former students still reach out to her today. After she returned to the United States, she continued her public service. She currently works at the Department of Labor, Office of Child Labor, forced labor, and human trafficking, overseeing grants made by this nation to foreign countries to stem the tide of child labor and forced labor, and in fact, just recently came back from the Philippines on such a, a official a business. Public service is as important to me and as meaningful to me as it is to her. I wholeheartedly believe in the idea of service above self, that is to serve, my country and be part of something far greater than me. With that sense of mission, I'm here today to share with you my commitment to advance agency priorities, focusing on ensuring that the Peace Corps remains the premier volunteer program in the United States, while at the same time continuing to improve the application experience and mechanisms to promote the health, safety and security of Americans representing our country in the communities throughout the world where Peace Corps volunteers are serving. I'm confident my years of experience with other federal agencies, including USAID, will transfer to Peace Corps' environment. And if confirmed, those experiences will inform and guide my recommendations to complement Director Olson's priorities, including strengthening the country portfolio review process. If implemented properly, this process can ensure that the Peace Corps is preparing volunteers to serve in partner countries who share the same vision of maximizing the impact of projects that can 
can be completed with finite resources. Coupled with the passion of volunteers, Peace Corps programs are designed to assist communities who are working hard to improve their economic opportunities. As you know, this approach has been a core mission of Peace Corps since its inception, and it ensures that taxpayer dollars are used wisely in countries that have solidified their commitment by entering into a bilateral country agreement with the agency to guide expectations of our cooperation. Equally important, I am committed to advancing procedures that have been established by subject matter experts to continue assessing the training and service delivery systems that are responsible for the health, safety, and security of volunteers. As a parent of a returned Peace Corps volunteer, I have experienced firsthand the inspiring work a healthy and safe volunteer can accomplish when he or she is properly trained and supported. If confirmed, I look forward to supporting current and future Peace Corps volunteers in the same manner Peace Corps professionals supported my daughter during her pre-departure and field service over 10 years ago. This includes working closely with experts and country directors to reduce risks volunteers face every day, including a professional and compassionate response to sexual assaults and other crimes when they occur. I want families to know that if confirmed, I will work diligently to ensure Peace Corps provides the best response and assistance in case their loved ones experience a crime during their service. That I have a vested interest in. In closing, I want to thank your staff who've been very courteous to me, as well as Peace Corps staffers who've helped me prepare for today's hearing. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I look forward to your questions. Well, gentlemen, thank you for your thoughtful opening statements. Um, in, in, uh, since I spent a lot of time in the Marine Corps when I was in Virginia, uh, I'm infused with the spirit of allowing uh, my troops to eat first, which is an ethic of the Marines. So um, I will uh, defer my questioning uh, to a bit later. I'm going to allow Senator Merkley to proceed with his questioning, uh, Senator Kane. And we may have some other members uh, come in and out in the meanwhile. Thank you. Mr. Swindeman, the Peace Corps strategic plan doesn't set out currently a vision for how many Peace Corps volunteers there will be. Will you advocate for an expansion of the Peace Corps program? And if so, where do you see it possibly expanding into? The um, agency, Senator, has. Um, this country portfolio review process. And in utilizing that process, um, which is data-driven, it seeks to determine where best to place Peace Corps volunteers. As we know, Congress uh, authorizes and appropriates, appropriates the funds for the agency. And so with those funds, it will utilize that process as to best where uh, Peace Corps volunteers should serve. The, uh, as you know, I'm not uh, on staff currently, so I have not been briefed specifically on where uh, the Peace Corps is looking at um, expanding. Uh, I do know, I'm aware that Sri Lanka is a country that, that is on uh, the list and on the table. Thank you. After, you. after you're on board, you can whisper in our ear about... And I will division. be glad, uh, Senator, to get back to you and, or your staff. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Eberhardt, uh, Saudi Arabia is seeking to acquire more nuclear reactors. 
and the U.S. is engaged in a conversation about the 123 uh, standard, the gold standard. Uh, do you feel we should do any sales if, if Saudi Arabia will not agree to the, the gold standard? Thank you, Senator. Uh, I know those negotiations have been going on uh, for several years now. Uh, those negotiations are not uh, an issue that falls within my, my normally, normal day-to-day -day work. Uh, I do believe the, uh, the standard, uh, the, the, uh, the so-called gold standard, uh, is something that we should always strive uh, to achieve. Uh, I know that the Undersecretary shares that view, that we should always strive toward the highest uh, non-proliferation standards possible in the uh, negotiation of one, two, three agreements. Uh, how the, the uh, negotiation with Saudi Arabia eventually comes out uh, remains to be seen, but uh, I absolutely agree that we should strive for that standard in a one, two, three agreement. Well, I think we should do more than strive, because if we, if we make the sales without the gold standard, it's a whole lot of trouble ahead. Uh, and also, in terms of the additional protocol of the NPT, if uh, Saudi Arabia isn't willing to sign on to it, especially in the context of our, of our dialogue to restrain and, and or eliminate uh, nuclear programs in Iran. Uh, if, we, if we give a bigger leash to Saudi Arabia, it's going to be very, very hard to maintain some uh, uh, lower standard or, well, higher standard for, for Iran. Uh, do you support the development of the low-yield sea-launched cruise missile, and is that consistent with Article 6 of the NPT? Uh, Senator, I know that uh, the Department of Defense is looking at several uh, options uh, coming out of the Nuclear Posture Review and um, where we are with the uh, INF Treaty with Russia. Uh, I don't, uh, regardless of uh, how that comes out, I think even with the decision to move forward in that program, we are still uh, in good stead with Article 6 of the NPT. Article 6 requires good faith negotiations towards uh, the cessation of the nuclear arms race, uh, eventually a nuclear-free world, and of course, uh, general and complete uh, disarmament. The United States' record on Article 6 is extraordinarily strong. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, we've reduced our arsenal by 88% from our Cold War high. We continue to reduce uh, uh, the numbers my, overall. My time's real short, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you off there, but thank you. How about the New START Treaty? If we, if we fail to extend it, or do you have an opinion, strong opinion at this point on whether we should extend it or not? Senator, I, I know that there's an ongoing review of whether or not we should extend the New START Treaty. There are a lot of factors that are being looked at, both the, uh, the gains that we get from the inspection regime uh, to the issue of dealing with Russia when they are cheating on treaties. Uh, so there are a lot of competing factors on both sides of that. I think those all need to be weighed carefully before we make a final decision on extension of the New START Treaty. Governor Gilmore. So I've been somewhat frustrated by the U.S. leadership on human rights the last couple of years. Uh, Burma conducted a massive, massive ethnic cleansing campaign against a, a Muslim minority, and our president hasn't ever said one word of condemnation. We've had other members of the administration who have said a few words occasionally in a few places. Uh, the Philippines engaged in a very, very significant extrajudicial uh, slaughter of thousands of uh, young men. We haven't taken a, a clear stand. These things are not under your purview, perhaps, in the position you would take, but they are very 
related. Isn't it important for the U.S. to take a strong stand on human rights throughout the world? It is, uh, Senator. I can assure you that uh, as the permanent representative of the OSCE, I'll be taking a strong stand on human rights. Uh, we are observing the abuse of people in conquered Crimea, occupied Crimea. One fellow has already been arrested and sent to an Arctic gulag. He should be returned immediately. He should be released immediately. Uh, we're seeing uh, an opportunity to inject human rights and uh, calm down some of the ethnic tensions that we see in the Balkans, particularly uh, the, the, uh, the Balkan countries and the challenges that they're facing there. The, uh, the Russians have not only been uh, imposing violations of human rights through, their, uh, through, their, through Europe and the, within their areas, but even within their own country. Uh, the OSCE is the premier organization that, play, that casts its standard on human rights. As the permanent representative, you can be sure I'll be vigorous in these matters. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, I do feel that our voice will be much more influential if we uh, pay attention to human rights in places we haven't been paying attention to it in the last couple of years. Thank you. Senator Kane. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks for the indulgence to allow us to go. Uh, yes. Mr. Swenneman, you were giving congratulations about UVA. There are four UVA grads in the United States Senate, but neither of the Virginia senators had the talent and or judgment to get a degree <laughs> from the University of Virginia. So Governor Gilmore can accept congratulations, and Roxanne can, who has a UVA degree, and, and Jay also has a UVA degree and can take congratulations, but the Virginia senators, sadly, were lacking at least at that point in their life. We've tried to you know, compensate for it in years since. Um, Governor Gilmore, I want to ask you, OSCE is, is, plays an important role at a fairly challenging time in Europe. You know, there's, there's 29 nations in, uh, in the EU right now, but the EU challenges, especially uh, with Brexit still being so much up in the air, have sort of paralyzed some of European politics for the last few years. Uh, there's 29 nations in NATO. Uh, in the North Atlantic. Um, the OSCE is much larger, as your testimony points out, 57 nations, so many that aren't members of the EU or that aren't members of NATO nevertheless have come together under the OSCE banner. Talk a little bit about how you would attempt, uh, should you be confirmed, to use the breadth of the coalition to, to promote uh, some stability and unity in what seems at least sort of from this side of the Atlantic to be a pretty difficult time right now. Yeah, but Senator Kane, the, the advantage of OSCE is its size, and it contains not just merely our allies and traditional friends, but also people that are just emerging out of authoritarian regimes and people who are, are still developing. It not only uh, handles Europe, but it also goes into East Asia, uh, Central Asia, uh, many of the former Soviet republics that are independent now but somewhat authoritarian need the, the benefit of OSCE and are asking for help on the OSCE. In addition to that, the organization has uh, offices throughout uh, many of its member countries, particularly in the Balkans, but in other places. Uh, there's American leadership heading those offices in Serbia, Kosovo, uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina. Uh, they, uh, there are systems that have been put into place to deal with some of the thornier uh, problems. Chechnya, for example, there is a Moscow uh, mission mechanism to uh, send OSCE people to investigate into uh, human rights violations there. There's problems with uh, South Ossetia in, in uh, Georgia and uh, the, uh, the other countries that are, are there. 
the, the point is this, that even in Transnistria with Moldova, there's a 5.2 process where America plays a significant role. The reason I'm saying these things is because the OSC is working very hard to have processes in place to advance the interests of human rights, but also national security, both in Europe and beyond, and that favors, of course, uh, the United States. Maybe the most important thing is the special monitoring mission to Ukraine. That is an ongoing conflict. An American was killed there uh, last year. As a matter of fact, his name is Joseph Stone. The anniversary of his death is coming up. There are over a thousand people in place at the special monitoring mission in the Ukraine. Uh, so the, this is a serious opportunity to have eyes and ears on the ground. OSCE gives the opportunity to cast a light on what's going on throughout Europe and throughout these conflicts, and in that way to advance the interests of peace and security. I appreciate that answer. I want to ask you, uh, Mr. Ebhardt, to follow up on something that Senator Merkley was asking you about. He was talking about nuclear proliferation issues in the Middle East, and you addressed those in your testimony as well. Just a quote from your written testimony, which you did also uh, present orally here. There's also the longstanding problem of how to advance toward a Middle East, Middle East weapons of mass destruction free zone, an issue that dates to the treaty's indefinite extension in 1995. Um, some of the issues that we might deal with in terms of weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East will be in your portfolio, some might not, but, but I, I gather you're, what you would want us to do as members of the Foreign Relations Committee, I'm also on the Armed Services Committee, is to be very focused on this issue. Anything dealing with nuclear proliferation or proliferation of missile programs in the Middle East are things that we need to take very seriously, because obviously if we could have that part of the world be weapons of mass destruction free, that would be a huge uh, weight off not only our shoulders, but the shoulders of the entire world from a security standpoint. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, thank you, Senator. I would. Uh, in, in NPT uh, circles, this issue has been around for many years, and uh, all too often it's, it's tried to uh, be cast in, the, in, in terms of, you know, Israel needs to join the NPT. Uh, there are a range of issues that are in the way of a Middle East uh, weapons of mass destruction free zones, zone. Uh, Syria's joining and then violating the CWC, its use of chemical weapons against its own people, what Iran is doing with its missile program, what Iran is, is potentially with its breakout capability, what it can do with its, with its uh, nuclear program. Now, the president made the decision that the JCPOA was uh, defective in that it did not take a complete approach to the problem of Iran in the Middle East. Uh, and that is what uh, we are about now. Uh, we need to look at the full range of problems that, uh, that are in the Middle East today. And only then, by addressing these problems, can you actually start to have a conversation about a, a weapons of mass destruction free zone. But that is going to take the participation of all the states in the region, taking a clear-eyed look at all the problems in the region, and then working collectively to solve them. You, you would agree with me, though, as I conclude. You, you mentioned Iran, Syria, Israel, just at, by name. But we ought to be concerned about any nation in the Middle East that is expanding a missile program, or any nation that is expanding a nuclear program. All of those things need to be carefully, carefully monitored uh, by Congress. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, Senator, I would. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, 
Mr. Eberhardt, in my opening statement, I referenced some of the significant headwinds uh, to our non-proliferation efforts uh, around the globe. And you, you just look at a map. I mean, Iran, North Korea, Russia, Pakistan, India, there are questions uh, about China from many. So with respect to non-proliferation, is there a particular country or region that uh, we should really be most focused on right now? I know there recent news uh, has uh, certainly had a number of us on, on tenterhooks with respect to India and Pakistan. Uh, but uh, what do you consider uh, the region of greatest concern to you uh, as, as you consider stepping into this position you've been, been nominated for? Uh, thank you, Senator. That's, that's a difficult question. It, uh, Judging between the problem of North Korea's nuclear program and, and the, the path that Iran is potentially on, um, uh, both are extremely uh, difficult challenges that, that need to be addressed. Now, we, uh, and, and they, they require different tools to, to address them. Uh, but if there's one thing in common, it, it is going to require collective a, uh, activity on the part of the broader international community. Uh, I don't believe the United States can solve the North Korean problem alone. I don't think we can solve the Iran problem alone. But we can lead in the solution of that problem uh, by bringing pressure to bear on both of those regimes uh, to, to uh, end the nuclear program in North Korea and ensure that Iran never uh, acquires a nuclear weapon. So by way of follow-up, what do you consider the most effective international organizational or multilateral organization uh, to deal with the threat of non-proliferation. Uh, we've had challenges in the Security Council, uh, of course, and, and, and so um, how do we combat proliferation? Uh, Senator, I think we need to use all the tools in the toolbox. There are times when the UN can be of use. There are times when agencies such as the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, can be useful. There are times when uh, a, a group of nations working under, you know, with the leadership of the United States can be the most effective tool. So I wouldn't point to any one uh, tool that, that is sort of the key to the, to the solution of the problem. I think you need to look at each problem uh, on its own basis and then uh, craft a strategy to deal with it. Some have expressed concerns about uh, a continuing qualitative and quantitative uh, improvement in Chinese, Indian, and Pakistani nuclear arsenals that might destabilize the strategic relationship among those three countries. And uh, in recent days, we've had this standoff between India and Pakistan continue, even though it seems the risk of conflict has diminished. Um, it's obviously a significant concern if tensions were to again rise between nuclear powers. So if confirmed, what policies would you continue or would you initiate uh, to increase st strategic stability among these three countries? Thank you, Senator. Uh, so within, within the realm of the responsibility of the office that I would have if confirmed, I think Focusing on the nuclear issues is, is going to be key. I think one of the initiatives that we have tried to press uh, is to expand the group of countries that have declared a, a moratorium on the production of fissile material. Now, four of the five of the P5 uh, have done so. China, notably amongst the P5, has not, and of course, neither of India and Pakistan. 
Um, there have been efforts over the years to negotiate a, a treaty that would, that would ban the production of fissile material for, uh, for use in nuclear weapons. Uh, those efforts uh, have failed largely to the opposition of both China and Pakistan, but there may be an interim step where you can get them to at least join the broader community in, in halting the production of, of fissile material. I do think we also need to, uh, to look at how we have a conversation that includes India and Pakistan. Too often in NPT circles, they look at the world through only NPT states' parties uh, and talk about uh, a world free of nuclear weapons as if you could do so only with NPT state parties. Well, of course, one does need to deal with India and Pakistan if, if one imagines uh, the achievement of such a world. So we do need to find a way to uh, engage uh, with them uh, in, in appropriate fora to bring them into the conversation uh, to talk about how responsible nuclear powers act uh, most notably uh, by, by halting uh, arms racing and beginning to look at how you can bring your numbers down. Thank you. Mr. Gilmore, um, I, I want to note something that uh, my colleague, Senator Kane, also mentioned. There's some overlapping membership uh, between different entities, the NATO and EU, uh, United Nations, I would add, uh, and OSCE. You mentioned is, is uh, I think, the unique value proposition of OSCE is, is you have dozens more members, 67, I believe, is, is the number, 57, all right. Um, and then you also mentioned security, rule of law being points of emphasis, and then human rights really looms largest. Is, how would you characterize the future of the OSCE? Will that really be the, the, the distinguishing factor and uh, the, the defining uh, facet of, of its mission as compared to these other entities, human rights? Senator, I think that the OSCE is, uh, because it's so broad-based and it has everybody in it, uh, all the way really across transatlantic and all the way into Central Asia, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful opportunity to communicate and to advocate uh, and to uh, pursue American national interests as well as the interests of our allies in a broad-based way. If you look at the, the higher profile in our multilateral organizations, the European Union is a basic economic type of organization seeking to try to emerge as some type, kind of nation, but it, it doesn't include a lot of people that are in the OSCE all the way into Asia. NATO is our allies, and they are, of course, in a, a potential confrontation mode militarily. The OSCE is an opportunity to get out here and talk about all these other issues, the issues of, uh, of anti-Semitism, the ideas of uh, religious freedom, which, by the way, members of Congress have been very forthright in leading on those kinds of issues, as well as security issues. Uh, it's the OSCE that deals with the Vienna document that talks about the the transparency of the conventional forces in Europe and the challenges that are being faced with that uh, right now. But Open Skies, which is ongoing right now, these, these confidence-building measures to, pre to prevent war. And then, of course, the, uh, the third basket is the economic uh, basket as well. So there, there's a lots of different, it's a broader-based agenda than you see in most of the other uh, uh, multilateral organizations. And the American uh, mission there punches above its weight. Considering the, uh, the, the contributions financially that are given to OSCE from the United States and especially to the American mission, it does an awful lot. 
and deals with an awful lot of issues that are matters of war and peace. Uh, and that's why, if confirmed, I will try to pursue all of these multi-areas multi together with the mission at, at my command. You mentioned uh, multifaceted missions out there, anti-Semitism, religious freedom, open skies, conflict prevention being some of, of, of uh, the current uh, issues. Do you foresee challenges for the organization uh, moving forward? And if so, how would you characterize those challenges? Uh, I think that the, the countries that are in this organization perceive the value of it, and they understand what it's, it, how valuable it is to be a part of this. Uh, even the Russians are trying to use the organization to their advantage. It's up to us to make sure that, that they can't misuse the OSCE. But uh, the other countries, uh, for example, uh, Uzbekistan has now said that they want to work with the OSCE to begin to promote democratic values. You're not going to see that in conjunction with the other organizations to which you're, you're referring. You've asked me a direct question, what is the future of the OSCE? I believe with senatorial and congressional support and the support of the, of the secretary and the president that this organization can be a central organization for the advancement not only of American interests but of multilateral interests. And will be, I believe. I believe there's confidence of the members in the organization going forward. Thank you, sir. Mr. Swindeman, uh, as you know, in the 1961 Peace Corps Act, the Peace Corps was established as both a development organization to help meet the needs for trained manpower in the poorest areas of countries and as a public diplomacy organization to help promote a better understanding of the American people. How would you assess the job the Peace Corps is doing as a development organization today? That's a, Senator, that's a very good question. Uh, I think the fact that Peace Corps has continued these many years, we're now 57 years, 58 years in existence, um, demonstrates its effectiveness. I think the fact that Peace Corps has uh, sought to, in its country portfolio review process, to um, demonstrate and to assess its effectiveness using evidence-based uh, data um, has shown that they, 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 they have been uh, effective. Um, the personal stories that are received that come back to the agency about what the volunteers have done. The fact that a number of the projects that were started by uh, volunteers still continue in existence uh, when very easily it, they could have terminated, uh, I think demonstrates the effectiveness of the, of the Peace Corps. And the fact that, although I can't tell you specifically because I haven't been briefed in on everything, but that there are some countries that are made a request to Peace Corps, and as you know, Senator, that's what uh, starts a process. In other words, um, peace, uh, the country has to request the Peace Corps as the first step before um, the, the following process goes. The Peace Corps doesn't simply impose uh, the fact that they want to be there. The country wants to have them there, I think, is, uh, demonstrates um, the effectiveness of, of the Peace Corps and the desire to have the Peace Corps present. Very good. I, I appreciate the response. And, and with respect to the evidence-based uh, policies that they attempt to implement and iteratively improve, uh, should you be confirmed, I look forward to working with you on, 
on seeing how we might enhance those uh, moving forward. Um, I thought you quite appropriately, Mr. Swindeman, um, discussed uh, at some length the safety of volunteers and your concern uh, about the safety of volunteers. I know there are a number of Hoosiers uh, who I encounter who were either former Peace Corps volunteers or are looking to join the Peace Corps. We have a number of them that joined from Indiana University and, and um, uh, we, we want our volunteers uh, to be safe. In your view, what are some of the most important and effective steps taken by the Peace Corps in recent years to enhance the safety of volunteers? I think, uh, Senator, uh, Mr. Chairman, there have been a, a number uh, of steps uh, with regard to that. First of all, as you've pointed out, the health, safety, and security of the volunteers is the number one priority of the, of the agency. Through the Kate Pusey Act, which the agency implemented, policies in terms of sexual assault, for example, have been implemented. Training of the volunteers has um, been implemented. There is an Office of Victim Advocacy that has been established. There has been the Sexual Assault Risk Reduction um, Liaisons to proposed, proposed that have been um, uh, provided uh, with regard to those that are subject uh, to, to sexual, uh, sexual assault. So the agency has done this, and what is interesting that has come back to me is that the Peace Corps is now becoming the gold standard with regard to the issue of sexual assault. There are other agencies that are looking to Peace Corps in terms of what they, what they do. Now, the, the key thing for Peace Corps will be is continuing to monitor and evaluate its policies, its training, its programs in that regard. It's much like our first responders or our men and women that serve in, in uniform, um, our diplomats uh, abroad. It's constantly looking at what we're doing and evaluating to make sure that we're effective and efficient. Thank you for that fulsome response. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by the many uh, successes uh, ongoing the Peace Corps on that front. Um, currently, the Peace Corps has a presence in 65 countries. In the last decade, more than 20 countries have asked for a Peace Corps program to be established. You did indicate uh, early on that you didn't have eyeballs on, on that list of requested countries, if I recall, sir. Uh, Sri Lanka is one that you, you think may be on the list. You, you speculated. but. Um, can you give me some sense, and I think you also indicated you don't have committed to memory or, or um, access to the specific criteria for establishing a new program. Is that correct, or, or can you speak to that? Well, I think I can give you, uh, Mr. Chairman, generally. I Please. think what, you know, I mentioned before, uh, first of all, that the country, as you pointed out, has to request. Um, after that is, the Peace Corps has to assess a number of factors, approximately six, uh, with regard to um, the feasibility of Peace Corps volunteers being. They looked at safety. They looked at health. They looked at effectiveness in terms of what is the need that the um, country is, um, is expressing. And so there are factors. Now, in the country portfolio review process, as I understand it, the... Uh, 
process involves about 133 or so indicators. And the reason why they've gone to, as I understand it, have gone to evidence-based. First of all, people are looking, such as yourself, members of Congress are looking for evidence-based decisions. But they're looking at the reason why it was implemented, among other things, was consistency, transparency, um, maintaining um, uh, that there's no favoritism with, with regard uh, to that. And by looking at a number of factors, um, Peace Corps is able to, to look at where's the best place for Peace Corps volunteers to be and what country, if requested, can they work with in terms of the resources that are uh, provided uh, to, to Peace Corps. Well, relatedly and lastly, um, perhaps you could uh, explain uh, what the process is to close an existing program, if any. Well, I think, again, um, I'm going to have to pause a moment, Mr. Chairman, because, as mentioned previously, I'm not on staff, so I don't work intimately with the agency and with the people who make those decisions. And I'm not, you know, can't be briefed or if confirmed. read in. But if confirmed, I certainly that would, get back, I would get back to you yes, as to that. But I believe that the country um, review process, portfolio review process, is part of that. Now, certainly there are external factors that are going to come into play with anything, for example, in terms of threats and the like. And under the law, um, current statute, the agency has to notify Congress in terms of opening, closing, uh, suspending um, programs yeah. in a particular country. But imagine there would be guideposts uh, or, or um, different factors we follow, but of course this is Correct. an instrument of diplomacy, so we do need to consider external factors. Correct. Um, sir. Yes, sir. Um, well, that's all I have in terms of questioning, and I don't see any other members around waiting to ask questions. So congratulations to, um, to each of you for um, surviving this part of the process. Thank you again to all of our nominees for providing us um, with the benefit of your testimony earlier, uh, your presence here today, and for bringing your family members along as well. For the information of members who may be watching these proceedings, uh, their record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Thanks again to members of this committee, our nominees, and their families. This hearing is now adjourned. <laughs>